Chapter Fifteen of the Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Fifteen, in which Jerry Carew gives David his views on future punishment and little Hoyle pays him a visit and is made happy. Uncle Jerry Carew had led David's horse down to the station ready saddled to meet him according to agreement, and side by side they rode back, the old man beguiling the way with talk of mountain affairs most interesting to the young doctor, who led him on from tales of his own youthful prowess when catamounts and painters were nigh as frequent as woodchucks is now until he felt he knew pretty well the history of all the mountainside. Yes, when I were a little un, no higher than my horse's knees, I can remember there were a gathering for a catamount hunt on Reed's Hill, over towards Pisgah. Catamounts were mighty pestering critters them days. Every man able to tote a gun were there. Old man Caswell, that were Miss Merlin. She were only a mite of a baby then. Her grandpa, he were the oldest man in the country. He went and carried his rifle his pa fit in the revolution with. He fit at King's Mountain, and all about here he fit. Did he fight in the Civil War, too? Her grandpa's pa? No, he were too old for that. But his grandson, Caswell, he fit in it, and he never come back, neither. Old Miss Caswell, Cassandra Merlin's grandma, she lived a widow nigh on to thirty year. She and her daughter, that's old Miss Farwell that is now, they lived there and managed the place until she married Merlin. You knew her first husband then? Yes, know him? Everybody knew Thad Merlin. He come from over Piscaway and he took Marthy there. It's queer how things goes. I always liked Thad Merlin. There weren't no harm in him. David saw a quaint, whimsical smile play about the old man's mouth. He were a preacher. Kind of a mixture of a preacher and teacher and hunter. Couldn't anybody beat him hunting and farming? Well, he could farm, too, better than most. He done well whatever he done. But he had a right queer way. He built that there rock wall, and he lowed he'd have it run plumb round the place. He were a fiddler, and he'd build a while and fetch his fiddle. He weren't right strong, and then he'd sat there on the wall and fiddle to the birds and the wild creatures they'd come and hear to him. I seen squirrels settin' on end harkin' to hear him myself. Arter a while, folks begun to think that he didn't preach the right kind of religion and they wouldn't go to hear him no more without it were to listen did he say anything they could find fault with pears like they got in that away they didn't go for nothing else hit claire plum broke him all up he quit preaching and took more to fiddling and he sort of grew puny and one day just naturally laid down and died all for nothing at anybody could see what was the matter with his preaching asked david and again the whimsical smile played around the old man's mouth, and his thin lips twitched. 
I reckon there weren't enough hell and damnation in it. Our people here in the mountains, they're right kind and soft themselves. They don't whop their children, nor do nothing much, except a shooting now and then, but that's only amongst the men. The women tends mostly to the religion, and they likes a heap of hell and damnation. It sort of stirs em up, and gives em something to chaw on, and, and keeps em contented like. They has something to threaten their men folks with, and keep the chillin straight on, and a place to send their neighbors to when they don't suit. Yes. It's right handy for the women. I reckon they couldn't get on without it. Do they think they will have bodies that can be hurt by any such thing in the next world? I reckon so. But Preacher Merlin, he said that there were paths of light and paths of darkness, and that every man he bided right where he were at when he died. If he had took the path of darkness, there he was in it. But if he took the path of light, where was heaven, then he was there, and he said the Lord never made no hell. It were just our own selves made such as that, and he took and cut that there place clear plumb out in the scriptures and the world to come. But he sure had a heap of learning, only some said a sight on it were heathen, and that were why he left all the hell and damnation out in his religion. Thus enlightened concerning many things, both of this particular bit of mountain world, which was all the world to his companion, and of the world to come, Thring rode on, quietly amused. Sometimes he dismounted to investigate plants new to him, or to gather a bit of moss or fungi or parasite, anything that promised an elucidating hour with his splendid microscope. For these he always carried at the pommel of his saddle an airtight box. The mountain people supposed he collected such things, for the compounding of his drugs. When they reached the fall place, David continued along the main road below, and took a trail farther on, merely a foot-trail little used, to his airy. He had not seen Cassandra since they had walked together down from Hoke Baloo's place. He had gone to Farrington partly to avoid seeing her, nor did he wish to see her again until he should have so mastered himself as to betray nothing by his manner that might embarrass her, or remind her painfully of their last interview, knowing he must eliminate self to re-establish their previous relations. David rode directly to his log stable, put up his horse, then unslung his box, and walked with it toward his cabin. Suddenly he stopped. From the thick shrubbery where he stood, he could see in at the large window where his microscope was placed, quite through his cabin, into the light, white canvas room beyond. Before the fireplace, clearly relieved against the whiteness of the farther room, stood Cassandra, gazing intently at something she held in her hand. David recognized it as a small framed picture of his mother, a delicately painted miniature. He kept it always on the shelf near where she was standing. He saw her reach up and replace it, then brush her hand quickly across her eyes and knew she had been weeping. He was ashamed to stand there watching her, but he could not move. Always, it seemed to him, she was being presented to him thus strongly against a surrounding halo of light, revealing every gracious line of her figure and her sweet, clean profile. He turned his eyes away, but as quickly gazed again. She had disappeared. 
He waited, and again she passed between his eyes and the light, here and there, moving quietly about, seeing that all was in order, as her custom was when she knew him to be absent. He saw her brushing about the hearth, carefully wiping the dust from his disordered table, lifting the books, touching everything tenderly and lightly. His flute lay there. She took it in her hands and looked down at it solemnly, then slowly raised it to her lips. What? Was she going to try to play upon it? No, but she kissed it. Again and again she kissed the slender magic wand hurriedly, then laid it very gently down, and with one backward glance walked swiftly out of the cabin and away from him, down the trail with long, easy steps. Only once more she drew her hand across her eyes, and with head held high, moved rapidly on. Never did she look to the right or the left, or she must have seen him as he stood, scarcely breathing and hard beset to hold himself back and allow her to pass him thus. Now he knew that she had been deeply stirred by him, and the revelation fell upon his spirit, filling him with a joy more intense than anything he had ever felt or experienced before, so poignantly sweet that it hurt him. Had he indeed entered into her dreams and become an undercurrent in her life, even as she had in his? And did her soul and body ache for him as his for her? Then he suffered remorse for what he had done. How long she had defended herself by that wall of impersonality with which she had surrounded herself. He had beaten down the ramparts and trampled in the garden of her soul. As he stood in the door of his cabin, the place seemed to breathe of her presence. She had made a veritable bower of it for his return. Every sweet thing she had gathered for him, as if out of her love and her sorrow, she had meant to bring him an especial blessing. A shallow basin filled with wild forget-me-nots stood on the shelf before his mother's picture. Ferns and vines fell over the stone mantel, and in earthen jars of mountain ware the early rhododendron, with its delicate pearly pink blossoms, filled the dark corners. Masses of the plumed white ash shook feathery tassels along the walls, making the air sweet with their fragrance. Ah, how clean and fresh everything was! All his disorder was set to rights, and fresh linen was on his bed in his canvas room. Even his table was laid with his small store of dishes and food placed upon it, still covered in the basket he was now so accustomed to see. Sweet and dainty it all was. He had only to light the fat pine sticks laid beneath the kettle swung above and make his tea, and his meal was ready. Had she divined he would not stop at the fall place this time, when in the past it had been his custom to do so? Ah, she knew for is not the little winged god a wonderful teacher? Thring was humbled in the very dust and ashes of repentance as he sat down to his late dinner. The fragrance in the room, all he ate, everything he touched, filled his senses with her, and he, he had only brought her sorrow. He had come into her life but to bruise her spirit and leave her sad at heart with a deep sadness he dared not and could not alleviate. He lifted a pale purple orchid she had placed in a tumbler at his hand, and examined it. Evidently 
she had thought this the choicest of all the woodland treasures she had brought him and had placed it there a sweet message what should he do ah what could he do he must not see her yet at least not until tomorrow later david brought in his specimens and occupied himself with his microscope he had begun a careful study of certain destructive things even here in the wild he found them evil and unwholesome clinging to the well and strong slowly but surely sapping the vitality of those who gave them life every evil he thought must in the economy of nature have its antidote so with the ardor of the scientist he divided with care the nasty pasty growth he had found and prepared his plates systematically he made drawings and notes as he studied the magnified atoms beneath his powerful lens and while he sat absorbed in his work hoyle's childish voice piped at him from the doorway howdy dr thring well hello howdy said david without looking up from his work what you got in that there gold machine can i look too what have i got why i've got a bit of the devil in here where'd you get him huh oh i found him along the road between here and the station did he come on the cars with you where were he at how come he in there david did not reply for an instant and the odd child drew a step nearer where were he at he insisted how come he in there he was hanging to a bush as i came along and i put him in my box and brought him home and cut him up and put a little bit of him in here then there was silence and david forgot the small boy until he heard a deep-drawn sigh behind him looking up for the first time he saw him standing aloof a look of terror in his wide eyes as if he fain would run away but could not from sheer fright poor little mite david in his playful speech had not dreamed of being taken in earnest he drew the child to his side where he cuddled gladly nestling his twisted little body close partly for protection and partly in love you reckon he's plumb dead david could feel the child's heart beating in a heavy labored way against his arm as he held him and pushing his papers one side he lifted him to his knee do i reckon who's dead he asked absently with his ear pressed to the child's back the devil what you done brought home in your box dead oh yes he's dead good and dead sit still a moment so now take a long breath a long one deep that's right now another so what for i want to hear your heartbeat can you hear it yes don't talk a minute that'll do what you want to hear my heart beat for i can feel it can you feel yourn be they more than one devil heaps of them when i go back you reckon i find em hanging on the bushes do they hang by their tails like possums does 
comfortable and happy where he was the little fellow dreaded the distance he must traverse to reach his home under the peculiar phenomena of devils hanging to the bushes along his route oh no no here i'll show you what i mean then he explained carefully to the child what he really meant showing him some of the strange and beautiful ways of nature and at last allowing him to look into the microscope to see the little cells and rays as he patiently and kindly taught he was pleased with the child's eager receptive mind and naive admiration towards evening hoyle was sent home quite at rest concerning devils and all their kin and radiantly happy with a box of many-colored pencils and a blank drawing-book which david had brought him from farrington i can learn to make things like you've been making with these and cass she'll help me he cried what is cass doing today david ventured she been up here most all morning and i helped get the light for fire and then she sent me home to help ma while she stayed to fix up but now i mean when you came up here weaving in the loom shed ma she has a lot of little biddies the old hen hatched em she did what have you done to your thumb asked david seeing it tied about with a rag i plunked it with a hammer when i were a-making houses for the biddies i nailed em i did you made the chicken coops well you are a clever little chap let me see your hand yes ma said i were that too but you weren't very clever to do this phew what did you hit your thumb like that for dunno he looked ruefully at the crushed member which the doctor laughed gently and soothingly why didn't you come to me with it ma allowed there weren't no use pestering you with everything she told me every man had to learn to hit a nail on the haid david laughed and the child trotted away happy his hand in a sling made of one of the doctor's linen handkerchiefs and his box of pencils and his book hugged to his irregularly beating heart but it was with the grave face that thring saw him disappear among the great masses of pink laurel bloom that evening as the glow in the west deepened and died away and the stars came out one by one and sent their slender rays down upon the hills david sat on his rock with his flute in his hand waiting for a moment to arrive when he could put it to his lips and send out the message of glad hopes he had sent before she had asked that one little thing that his music might still be glad and so for cassandra's sake it must be he tried once and again but he could not play at last putting away from him his repentant thoughts he gave his heart full sway saying to himself for this moment i will imagine harmlessly that my vision is all mine and my dream come true it is the only way then he played as if it were he whom she had kissed so passionately instead of his flute and thus it was the glad notes were falling on her spirit when frail found her end of chapter 15